it's going to be very difficult for Ukraine's allies to continue to keep the sanctions, provide weapons, provide other type of intelligence support if the Russians are claiming that they want to sit down and talk peace. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In the coming weeks or months, Ukraine is widely expected to launch a counteroffensive to reclaim territory captured by Russia. And if Ukraine is successful on the battlefield, Russia may float a ceasefire proposal that, more likely than not, would be disingenuous and merely an attempt to stall for time. These are some of the conclusions of a recent Red Team exercise conducted by the Public International Law and Policy Group, which gathered a number of experts to predict Russia's approach to a potential ceasefire negotiation. Joining me to discuss their findings and how a Russian ceasefire proposal might upend international support for Ukraine is Dr. Paul Williams, founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group, which is a pro bono law firm supporting states and governments involved in, among other things, peace and ceasefire negotiations. We kick off discussing why it makes sense to start thinking through a potential ceasefire even though there's very little evidence right now that a cessation of hostilities is a near-term probability. We then discuss what Russia might attempt to gain from a ceasefire agreement and how Ukraine and its allies in the West may respond. I think you'll find this conversation very useful and also better understand, as I did, the need to think through the dynamics of a ceasefire, even as the conflict as it stands now is very much on an escalatory cycle. And just one note from me before we start, the podcast could use your financial support. If you are in a position to make a monthly recurring contribution to the podcast to help us keep the lights on, to help us create the kind of unique content that we put out two times a week, every week, for the last 10 years and for 10 years in the future, please consider supporting the show. When it comes to making your recurring monthly contribution, I'm platform neutral. Whatever is easiest for you, please do. And there are three options. If you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts right now with a few taps of your finger, you can become a premium subscriber. If you are on my email list, you can make a contribution through Substack. 
Or you can simply go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. In each case, you will get some bonuses and special goodies for supporting the show, but I suspect the main motivation for you is that you like and appreciate and value the content that we produce so consistently for so many years and want to show your support. So thank you. Thank you in advance. Now, here is my conversation with Dr. Paul Williams of the Public International Law and Policy Group. So we are speaking ahead of a much-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. Meanwhile, Russia is escalating the conflict by routinely targeting civilian infrastructure in major cities. Yet you argue this is nonetheless an important time to be thinking carefully about what a ceasefire agreement might entail. Why is that? Why does it make sense to think through a ceasefire now? Well, Mark, I think the reason why it's important to get our heads around the consequences of any proposal for a ceasefire from Russia is that when it happens, it's going to catch us off guard. All of the focus is on the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the length of this war. But if Russia starts to lose significant amounts of the territory that it's occupied in Ukraine, they could put a ceasefire on the table in a heartbeat. And that will unsettle the political and the military support for Ukraine. And I think catch both the Ukrainians and their NATO allies off guard. So essentially, if Ukraine is on the stronger footing, it's recapturing territory that was previously captured and controlled by Russia, Russia might then press for a ceasefire. And then the international politics around the Ukraine conflict would sort of shift on a dime. Presumably, the kind of unified Western support, more or less, that we're seeing for Ukraine may fissure if Russia puts a ceasefire agreement on the table. Is that what you're suggesting? Yes, this is what we've seen happen in the past. And the situation in Bosnia, we've also seen this happen in Syria, where the Russians were and continue to be heavily engaged, is, you know, we tend to think of a ceasefire as the beginning of a peace process, as the beginning of peace. The Russians historically think of ceasefires as a rest and rearm, or as a political ploy to accomplish in the diplomatic arena what they've been unable to accomplish in the short term on the battlefield. And so when the Russians approach the situation in Ukraine, they're approaching it from the military perspective. And quite frankly, as we all know, they haven't done so well, and they know that. They're going to give it one or two last tries. But if they start to lose in a more dramatic fashion than they anticipate, they'll just put a ceasefire on the table. And then you'll have a situation where the Russians will say, well, hey, look, we're not the aggressors. We shouldn't be under sanctions. We're, we're proposing a ceasefire. We should sit down. We should talk. It's going to be very difficult for Ukraine's allies to continue to keep the sanctions, provide weapons, provide other type of intelligence support if the Russians are claiming that they want to sit down and talk peace. Are there specific countries or governments that count themselves as Ukraine allies that you think might perhaps go wobbly 
in the event of a sudden Russian ceasefire proposal? I have been very surprised, Mark, pleasantly surprised at the degree to which the NATO allies have held it together. We have not seen this type of homogeneous support in a very, very long time. But this support might in fact be quite thin in France, Germany, definitely Hungary. And I think that with the Chinese trying to enter the peace negotiation arena, you even had Brazil uh, a couple of days ago wanting to enter the arena as a mediator. You might find a very thin level of domestic support in Hungary, France, Germany, and maybe even in the United States. I think the United States is full on committed and the Americans understand a war of aggression, stealing children, genocide, but you never know how something can be distorted in the political arena. And of course, we're entering a, an election season as well, <laughs> in which you know it's not unreasonable to assume that the Republican nominee may be perhaps you know softer on Ukraine than the Biden administration has been. So that's, I think, worth noting as well. I completely agree. And I think it's even a little worse than that. I think the fear or the projection that the Republican nominee might be softer I think Biden is fully committed to this, and I think his security team is fully committed to this. But you could even see some waffling in the Democrats if they think they're going to be outflanked by the Republicans. Now, the good news is, to date, the Republicans that matter when it comes to national security understand what's happening with the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine and are fully on board with this. But if the Russians all of a sudden pivot and declare that they're the partners in peace, I think with some of our European friends, it's going to be difficult to keep them focused on the necessity of defeating what Russia is trying to accomplish in Ukraine. It's just sort of fascinating to think that, you know, one of Putin's goals all along vis-a-vis -vis the West and NATO was to find fissures and split the West and upend that unified NATO support for Ukraine. He's been unable to do so thus far, but through a sudden ceasefire proposal might just inject that fissure that he's been unable to do so all along. Yeah, Mark, I don't want to be the Winnie the Pooh Eeyore at the party <laughs> and say, it's not going as well as we think it is. But I'm a little worried because we have been so pleasantly surprised at the response of NATO and of America's allies that we may fall into the trap of underestimating how fragile the cohesion among the NATO allies really is. And I think the Ukrainians have done a phenomenal job militarily and politically. America and its NATO allies are doing an okay job politically. They haven't brought the global South along like they could have. And you know the sanctions are effective, but they're not really universal. And so I worry that the political acumen of America and its allies has not really been that effective. And Russia repositioning itself as a peacemaker could erode that. So you suggested earlier, and I think it's probably like the general and, and obvious consensus, that the circumstances in which Russia would press for a ceasefire is one in which they are starting to lose this counteroffensive. They're losing territory that they had once gained in eastern Ukraine. In terms of the contents or elements of that ceasefire, 
What did your red team exercise suggest about what Russia might want to include in a ceasefire agreement? Yeah, well, Mark, the red team that we pulled together of a number of former diplomats, generals who've negotiated with the Russians, either in U.S.-Russia negotiations on nuclear weapons or who've negotiated with and around the Russians in the Syria conflict and other areas, they were very sanguine about how clever the Russians are going to be with the ceasefire negotiations. When you think of a ceasefire negotiation, everyone thinks of a civil war. You stop, you freeze in place, and then you negotiate power sharing. That is the model that the Russians are going to put on the table. They're going to skip over the fact that it's a territorial war where the Russians have occupied Crimea plus parts of four other provinces or oblasts in Ukraine. The Russians will roll in and say, let's freeze in place. They're not going to talk about pulling their forces back. They're simply going to say, let's do a traditional ceasefire. Let's freeze in place. Let's begin a process of discussing how we will sort this out. And then they'll use that to rest, rearm, refresh their troops, try to loosen themselves from the sanctions. So the first step would be freeze in place. The second step would be, okay, if we're going to negotiate in good faith, you know, you have to take us out from under your thumb, NATO. You have to relieve the economic sanctions. And then they would try to establish parity. The Ukrainians can have this many in their armed forces, and then our troops in Ukraine can have an equal number of personnel and equipment. Because, you know, it's a ceasefire. It's both sides. Everything should be equal. Equity is an important principle in ceasefires. And they'll sound very reasonable for the moment. Yet it seems that all of the elements you just described, claiming Ukrainian territory as their own, by framing this as a more of a civil conflict, by making demands on NATO and Ukrainian security, are likely to be non-starters for Ukraine. Is that like the point? I think that is the point. And I think this is where the Ukrainians have been very clear. This is not a civil war. This is an occupation. For instance, at the moment, they're requiring the upwards of 8 million Ukrainians in the occupied territories to take on Russian citizenship or be treated as foreigners and deported. They're basically committing genocide by transitioning away the Ukrainian identity. And the Ukrainians see this in a very clear-eyed fashion and would realize that any cessation of hostilities, any ceasefire, would just allow the Russians more time and space to lock in that transformation of the culture and the population in those territories. And so the Ukrainians very clearly and very appropriately would say, well, let's do a ceasefire after the summer offensive, after we've reclaimed the four provinces. And then even Crimea, we have to realize Crimea is still on the table. And that puts them in the unfortunate position of appearing to be an aggressor. Because, you know, Mark, you've got your head into the Ukrainian conflict. Most of the listeners to this podcast will have their head around the complexities of the Ukrainian conflict. But if you're the leader of one of the countries in the global south or in one of the countries that likes to perceive itself as neutral, you're all of a sudden and you're going to see, well, wait a second, the Ukrainians want to continue the war and the Russians want to stop it. Are we supporting the wrong side here? And that's why it'll be very important, I think, for the United States and its allies to continue to be clear that this is Ukrainian territory and the Ukrainians have a right 
to recapture that territory and to rescue their 8 million citizens that are under occupation. In your red team exercise, did you find there to be any elements of a ceasefire that Ukraine might want to pursue that would be acceptable to Russia? If push comes to shove, if the Ukrainians are forced into a situation where they have to negotiate a ceasefire with, before they've reclaimed all of their territory, well, in particular Crimea, if they're unable to militarily take back Crimea, the Ukrainians have indicated a willingness to enter into a long-term process for the return of Crimea. Essentially, hope for and wait for some type of, dare I say, democratic transition in Russia, or simply a transition in Russia that would allow for a return of Crimea to Ukraine. So I want to be very careful and not say, oh, the Ukrainians should make these compromises. But they themselves have signaled that they see the two newly occupied territories, part of these two territories, as definite return to Ukraine. They've seen the two Donbass territories as definite return to Ukraine, but some type of devolution of power to the two Donbass territories, which they agreed to in the Minsk I and the Minsk II agreements, which were after 2014. Crimea is more difficult to crack, both militarily and politically. So something which puts Crimea on a separate path to a restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty is something that you know the Russians would agree to because they're simply going to wait it out as well. And the Ukrainians, I think, might put on the table. The idea is that Crimea is something that Ukraine is willing, at least, to kick down the road if it means a more immediate cessation of hostilities on terms that are more favorable to Ukraine in the near future. I think you're right, Mark. It's, uh, Crimea is a difficult subject to talk about because it is Ukrainian territory, but it has been Russified or Russified to a certain extent. And the Ukrainians are quite keen on returning it territorially and politically to Ukraine, but it's not essential in the short term for their economic and political survival. You know, Ukraine since 2014 has been quite keen for the return of Crimea but it was still able to politically and economically progress. They're going to need back these other four territories in order for Ukraine not to become a perpetually failed state or stuck in a perpetual frozen conflict. And that's the other worry. We saw this in Georgia, where the Russians have occupied part of Abkhazia and part of South Ossetia, or all of Abkhazia and all of South Ossetia, both of which are territories that are part of Georgia. Georgia has never been able to fully develop economically or politically because Russia has two hands on its territory. Same with the concerns with Moldova and Transnistria, where the Russians occupy a part of that country. You could see this having devastating consequences for Ukraine's future economic and political development, unless you can sort of pry those Russian hands from the four occupied territories. So earlier you noted, and you, you have a couple of times, that Russia's key objective with a ceasefire agreement would be to kind of lock in place whatever battlefield gains they have, but more importantly, use the ceasefire negotiations to rearm and, and rest. And presumably, they would then resume some sort of like nefarious activities, potentially even like a reconquest of parts of, of Ukraine. Is there anything that 
Ukraine and its allies can do in those negotiations if they happen to prevent that outcome, to prevent or stop Russia from using ceasefire negotiations just to regroup so they can fight again? Yeah, I think it'll be very important for the Ukrainians. You know, the words matter. You know, I, I, I teach law school and I always like to tell my students, you know, actually words matter, and especially in peace agreements and ceasefire agreements. Being very clear of the need for the Russians to remove their troops and their personnel from the Ukrainian territory, and then obviously have them replaced by monitors, be the United Nations monitors or OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, some type of monitors so that they're moved out of Ukraine. You could say even further back, but I don't think you could you know, dictate to the Russians where they can put their troops inside of Russia, but at least moving their troops further out so that it would require a substantial effort to return to the battlefield. So most successful ceasefires have a DDR, a demilitarization, demobilization, and then the R for reintegration of troops from the paramilitary or the rebel forces. You're not going to get the Russians to reintegrate anywhere, but to get them to move out of the territories that they're currently occupying. And then coupling that with express acknowledgement that Ukraine as a sovereign state has a right to seek security guarantees with other countries. Now, I don't want to go down to the path of sort of, oh, NATO membership, because that's going to be a tricky conversation along with EU membership. But you can still do certain security guarantees with the Ukrainians outside of NATO membership, which I believe should happen. But in a ceasefire, you want to make it clear that the ceasefire doesn't limit Ukraine's ability to pursue its self-defense by, in fact, resting and rearming, because Ukraine as a sovereign country has that right. Russia as an aggressor would need to pull its troops back. Again, it depends how effective the summer offensive is in terms of how much the Ukrainians can pressure the Russians into accepting. And I guess that kind of also comes down to that central question that you keep mentioning, which is Russia's credibility. Are they just suing for a ceasefire? Are they pressing for a ceasefire just as like a diplomatic stalling tactic? Or are they actually seriously interested in negotiating a ceasefire? And it sounds like more the former than the latter is, is more likely to be true. So it's definitely more likely to be the former, that they'll use it for rest and rearm. I think the Ukrainians get this. It's imperative that America and its allies think of it that way and start having that conversation. I can anticipate within days of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, there will be calls from China, from Brazil, from other countries, political parties in Europe and the United States for a ceasefire. We should also, though, be prepared for a stroke of luck that the Wagner Group decides this is actually a bad idea <laughs> to be in this war in Ukraine. There are more profitable places we can be engaged as a mercenary group. You know, the Wagner Group is to a large degree propping up what Russia has been able to accomplish in Ukraine. Maybe the population of Russia finally comes around and says, this is a actually bad idea. Or the oligarchs decide, you know, they've started repurposing the frozen assets of the oligarchs to provide for reconstruction for Ukraine. They can't do it yet with the Russian central assets, although the United States and others are trying to figure out how to do that. But the oligarchs continue to lose their money. So you may find a surprise change. You know, think back a year ago when the Russians were marching on Kyiv, we all thought they were going to take Kyiv. The Ukrainians put up an effective defense. 
we've all been surprised that the international community has called out Putin as a war criminal, that the International Criminal Court has indicted him as a war criminal. So I don't want to be rainbows and, and unicorns, but sometimes good things happen. And there may be that if Russia gets pushed back on its back foot, it actually stumbles. And then you would have a serious ceasefire. Prepare for them to be nefarious, but also prepare a plan B in case Russia does stumble and needs to get out of this conflict. So I know you've studied the legal aspects of you know a potential ceasefire, but I want to ask you maybe a question about like the, the moral implications of a potentially disingenuous Russian ceasefire proposal. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's it's disingenuous and Russia will use the time to rest and rearm, as you say, but on the other hand, potentially they are offering a cessation of hostilities, the stopping of these missiles raining down on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, killing civilians, and you know, also the ending of, of killing of Russian soldiers who are conscripts and sent to the front line, or in the case of Wagner Group, recruited from prisons as basic cannon fodder. Like There is almost like a lot of, of good that could come from a sudden halt in the killing. And how do you weigh that against the potential negative outcomes that might come if Russia just uses the time to rest and rearm? No, you're right, Mark. This is the moral conundrum that the Ukrainians, their allies are going to be facing because the narrative will be, well, wait a second, a ceasefire saves lives. What you're proposing is to continue the conflict. People will die. And we see this moral conundrum quite frequently with the question of international accountability, which I know you've addressed on a number of your podcasts already, in particular with respect to Ukraine. And the issue there is, well, you've indicted so-and-so, and so it makes it more difficult to negotiate. You know, Bashir in Sudan, Milosevic in Yugoslavia, the uh, resistance forces in Sierra Leone, and now Putin's indicted. But the reality is when you look back at cases such as Yemen, where there was an amnesty, you had a second war. The war in Yemen at the moment is in large part because President Saleh was granted amnesty. You had a second war in Sierra Leone because the head of the revolutionary forces was granted amnesty. I think there's parallels here. You can definitely make the moral argument that if you have a ceasefire, you save lives. But today, and it will probably cost you more lives tomorrow. You know, the 8 million Ukrainians under Russian occupation are likely to be, again, deported from their homes or transitioned, quote unquote, into Russians through the Citizenship Act. And so it's a short-term gain for probably a more violent, more destructive long-term outcome. So I'm glad you referenced past conflicts and past ceasefire opportunities, because I did want to ask you if there are other recent historic examples of ceasefire agreements or elements of ceasefire agreements that might be useful for negotiators in the context of, of Russia and Ukraine. What have we learned from past ceasefire agreements that might be applied to a potential agreement between Russia and Ukraine? Well, Mark, I think we've learned from successful 
ceasefires and failed ceasefires. One of the most successful ceasefire agreements is in Colombia between the Colombian government and the FARC. And they fought a decades long civil war and they reached a position of imbalance where the government had a persistent upper hand and they made offers of demobilization, economic reintegration, political participation to the FARC. So they combined tilting the balance on the battlefield with inducements to basically coming out of the jungle, literally, and coming into government. But they also coupled it with a fairly robust accountability dimension. So you would be separating out those responsible for atrocities from those who were just essentially conscripted into the paramilitary. I think the successes from there could apply to Ukraine. Again, that was a civil war. Ukraine is territorial aggression. But as you move into a ceasefire, thinking about how do you incentivize those that were conscripted, were forced into the military, or were trying to be professional military, as opposed to those who were basically stealing the children and you know, moving them to Russia or indiscriminate attacks or bombing. So having some robust accountability mechanism to basically separate the war criminals from those that were professional soldiers, and also finding ways to induce the Russians and others living in these occupied territories with a Russian, let's say, perspective to stay and to remain integrated into a Ukraine once those territories are returned. Now, on the flip side, in Sudan at the moment, you have as many ceasefires as there are days of the month. None of them are sticking. One of the reasons is they're just negotiating among the guys with guns, the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Response Forces. And these ceasefires don't hold because there's no genuine holistic approach, which takes into consideration the resistance committees, the local political officials, basically the civilian component. And so just doing a narrow ceasefire negotiation, again, you have to have the guys with guns committed to it, but you really need to have a holistic perspective of, does this meet the interests of the 45 million Ukrainians? And does it also tee up Russia for some type of hopefully democratic tilt or democratic transition? You can't just cut a deal. With the guys with guns. In the coming weeks and months, as this anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive comes underway, what will suggest to you whether or not Russia and Putin in particular might indeed make that ceasefire push, might, might call for a ceasefire? Or do you expect it just to happen suddenly and without warning? So, Mark, we'll be able to predict or foresee a pivot to a ceasefire based upon how effectively the Ukrainians utilize the American and European hardware that they've been accumulating these last few months, the Leopard tanks, the American Abrams tanks, the training that they've received in terms of integrating the Bradley fighting vehicles with their infantry. If they have remarkable and stunning success that's when the team at the US government and at NATO should be rapidly preparing an approach to ceasefire negotiations. The Russians, I think, anticipate that Ukraine will make slow and steady progress until they get to 
the end of the fall, the beginning of the winter. And if they can still keep a substantial portion of the territory that they have, the Russians and Crimea, then we're looking at November for a proposal for a ceasefire talks. If the Ukrainians instead are highly effective, and if the Russians are maybe fairly demoralized or not tactically effective, and the Ukrainians start to push through their lines and capture substantial amounts of territory, the Russians will pivot in a 24-hour window. They're quite capable of that. So it really depends on how effective the Ukrainians are in those first two to three weeks of the uh, counteroffensive. So essentially, you know, as you started, it really all depends on the success of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, but it, it could be a sudden pivot. If that sudden pivot happens, how do you recommend the U.S. government and NATO respond to a Russian ceasefire proposal? So the United States and its NATO allies literally need to be prepared with their talking points for success. The moral dilemma, which you outlined earlier and some of your other questions, are going to be the things that the global south, China, those that are slightly less committed to the territorial integrity of Ukraine in Europe, they'll raise those instantaneously. And so you're going to find a situation where the leadership of Ukraine's allies are going to need to be making the case for war. It's pretty awkward to be making that case. Now, the good news is the Ukrainians have been impressive in their commitment to international humanitarian law, basically the laws of war. Oftentimes, people will succumb to all sides are responsible. It's very complicated. You know, they'll slip into accommodation, and from accommodation, they'll slip into appeasement. One of the things that the allies of Ukraine should do every day is get up and remind the world that President Putin has been indicted by an international criminal court for war crimes related to the deportation, the stealing of Ukrainian children. That helps to focus people's minds. This may be complicated. This may be a moral conundrum, but the head of one of the states has been indicted for these atrocity crimes. And the Ukrainians, again, to their credit, have really complied with NATO and Western standards for how one conducts a defensive operation. Is there any other point you wanted to make, any question I didn't ask that you wanted to address? It's important for President Biden and America's allies to remind on a daily basis the strategic importance of what Ukraine is doing to help Europe be safe and the moral division between an indicted war criminal, the president of Russia, and Ukrainians fighting to basically remove the yoke of occupation from 8 million Ukrainians. Thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm.